You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is back open for live shows, classes, and customized corporate workshops and events. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. For more information, go to secondcity.com. The Second City is excited to work with Amazon as part of their new and exciting app called AMP. AMP is a home where anyone can create live radio-style shows alongside some of the biggest names in the entertainment industry, including ours. Join the Second City live every Thursday at 5 p.m. Central Time for our show, Second City Public Radio. SCPR is an interactive weekly lampoon of all things public radio. Each week, our host and an ever-expanding panel of Second City characters open up the lines to listeners from around the U.S. to ask questions and offer us opinions on a slew of wide-reaching subjects. Download the app, and don't forget to tune in. AMP. Thursdays at 5 p.m. Central Time. So I love this conversation. Uh, I'm talking to Aaron Ahuvia, who is the professor of marketing at the University of Michigan Dearborn College of Business. Uh, he has presented his research or performed consulting services for Procter & Gamble, Google, Audi, Samsung, General Motors, Microsoft, Herman Miller, and more. He has a new book. It's called The Things We Love, How Our Passions Connect Us and Make Us Who We Are. Enjoy the pod. <music> Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at the Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is Getting to Yes And. Days can be counted by the money you spend. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. The tick of the clock and the tick of the clock mark the moments till the ticking stops. Aaron Ahuvia, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So early in your new book, you note that, quote, neuroscientists using brain scans have shown that the better people expect wine to be before they taste it, the more pleasure they experience when they drink it. And this isn't just about wine. The same holds true for comic books, end quote. So what is going on with that? It's really interesting because it would not be surprising if you tell someone uh, this wine is like really expensive, it's really great. Sure. And then you give them whatever the cheap supermarket thing is. They're going to tell you it's great because they don't want to look like an idiot. They want to, you know, mm-hmm. so that's very expected. What's unexpected is that they actually enjoy it more, right? The pleasure centers mm-hmm. of their brain get activated more. And it, it really has to do with the way our experience of the world is deeply influenced by our expectations and the model we build in our mind of how the world is, this little sort of miniature model of the world that we actually live in, the one in our mind, um, really affects our actual experiences. So like this book, which I found fascinating, um, you couldn't have thought you were entering college to study the love of things, 
Like at what, at what point did that become central for you? That was a, a little late. So my undergraduate work was in philosophy. I got into this. I ended up in the PhD program in marketing at Northwestern at Kellogg. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a, a marketing professor some people have heard of, Kotler, uh, uh, Phil Kotler, oh, yeah. um, who's a pretty well-known guy. And he had this whole thing about how everything was marketing. Um, mm. You know, nonprofits were marketing when they asked for donations. And he even said, like, when you're dating, then you're marketing yourself to the other person that you're dating. And I was single at the time. Mm-hmm. And while marketing, normal marketing was a little bit interesting, dating was very, very interesting. Sure. So, uh, I asked him if I could study this a little bit, sort of look at dating from a marketing perspective. And he was actually really enthusiastic. Um, and then from there, I met a professor, Mara Edelman, and she actually had some data from a dating service. And this was just when the dating services were taking off and online dating was taking off. So she had this data and we wrote a whole bunch of papers and got to be big authorities on dating services. And I actually ended up on the Oprah Winfrey show. So it was, it was great. Yeah. Um, But then I needed a job when I was going to graduate. And I knew that if I went on the job market as an academic, you know, trying to get a job in a business school as the dating service guy, no one was going to hire me. It wouldn't be taken seriously. So I thought, well, I've studied the psychology of love in order to do this work. I've spent years reading about the psychology of love. And it hit me, I can just turn this on its head. And I can say, what about when people love brands, or people love objects or products or activities and all these different things. So that's, that's how I got into doing this research, because I, I already had a big investment in the expertise on the psychology of love, and I wanted to apply it in a, in a new way. Uh, one of the uh, things that you write about in the book, regarding love is you say, quote, the happiest married couples are not the ones who see each other the most accurately, but rather the ones who maintain the greatest positive illusions about their spouses, uh, end quote. And I, uh, I read that to my wife and she says that tracks. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and I think it is true in our, our relationship. I think we each think the other, uh, that, that, that we won, you know, we won the lottery. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, I mean, I don't know. I'm not depressed by that. I'm I'm not either. And I, now, of course, I will say that uh, if my wife ever listens to it, that it is not true. In my case, all my positive views of her are entirely realistic. However, <laughs> uh, normally it kind of goes back to the wine example. Just like if you really think the wine is going to be great, you enjoy it more. If you really think your spouse is brilliant or funny, you enjoy them more. Yep. Yeah. Uh, can you talk to us about your, the concept of re- relationship warmers that you talk about in the book? Yeah. So this one is is complicated, but it's really, I think, pretty important. So I have to start a little bit uh, ways off, but I promise I'll get there. Cool. So, so the brain, uh, the human brain actually, believe it or not, it thinks about objects and people quite differently, even to the point where in some cases it uses different parts of the brain to think about objects from people. So if you watch a person doing an activity, you'll process that in one part of the brain. If you watch a robot doing the exact same activity, you will actually process that more in a different part of the brain. Mm -hmm. 
love is contingent on thinking about things the way we think about people. Love really evolved for people. Um, in fact, we have a default typical way that we deal with objects. And we have a word for that. We call it objectification or to objectify something, right? And that's not really a very kind thing. Right? When we say that we've objectified a person, it means we're, we don't love them. We're just treating them as an instrument, as a tool to do what we want. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's kind of the default normal way we relate to objects. And if you want to love an object, you have to start thinking about it, get your brain to think about it as if it was a person. And there's three basic ways of doing that, three ways that sort of warm up the object. So instead of it being this cold relationship, it's this warmer relationship. So the first most obvious one is anthropomorphism. You take right. the object and you make it talk like a person, think like a person, walk like a person, look like a person. And the human brain is really easily fooled by this. It doesn't have to look very much like a person at all. And our brain categorizes it as a person and starts thinking about it in these sort of human ways. The second way is to connect it in your mind to a person. So your engagement ring, you've connected that in your mind to the person that you are engaged or, or married to. If someone gives you a gift, you connect that to them. If it's a photograph of a person, you connect it to them. But that can also work um, at a larger level. So if you're a fan of a sports team, the sports team sort of connects you to everybody else who's mm -hmm. a fan of the sports team. Once the object starts connecting you to other people, you tend to think about it a little bit more as if it was a person because it sort of rubs off on those people. So one way to know if this is happening for you is just to think what would happen if I didn't like those people anymore. So one example I think about a lot a uh, guy received a bunch of gold, sort of collectible gold coins from his father. They meant a lot to him. Uh, later, he discovered that his father had been having an affair for many, many years, and his parents split up, and he very much sided with his mother and was furious with his father. Mm -hmm. And so when he became angry with his father, he got rid of the gold coins, right? Mm -hmm. The value of this of the coins uh, he actually gave them away. He didn't even sell them, right? Because hmm. he didn't want to be contaminated by you know this object. So the value of the object rises and falls with the, the status of the person that we connect it to. The last, which is actually by far the most common, uh, especially in terms of marketing, the way marketers try and sell us stuff, is that you make the object part of your own identity. You make it part of who you are. And once the object becomes a symbol in your own mind for yourself, then since you're a person, you treat it as if it is a, you know, your mind thinks about it as if it's a person. Everybody thinks about it as if it's you. And since you feel very warmly towards yourself, you feel warmly towards this object. Fascinating. Okay. And then you also talk about pets. Uh, and you talk about research on person-dog relationships and specifically the difference between people who have little dogs and people who have big dogs. Right. And I'm very interested in this because I have a, a hundred pound Bernese mountain dog. I've always had big dogs. I grew up with Newfoundlands yeah. and I have thoughts about them. So tell us about that research shows. Okay. So before, before I say anything, I should say that I absolutely love 
uh, my two dogs, mm-hmm. which are both little dogs. So I've got uh, their name Noodle and Dumpling. Excellent. And they are both uh, King Charles Cavaliers. They're kind of a spaniel. Um, and that name, I think, is really uh, kind of funny because it turns out uh, that King Charles was King Charles II was king of England in the 1600s, and he had these spaniels, and they followed him everywhere around the palace. This whole pack of them, like wherever he went to a meeting, these dogs just followed him from place to place. And because they were so sort of loyal to him, his political followers were called Cavaliers, and so. People said, well, these dogs are like your political followers. They're also cavaliers. Mm-hmm. And these dogs, the, our two dogs, really do this. They figure out who's king of the household. <laughs> and then they follow my wife from room to room mm-hmm. wherever she goes. So it's, it's really funny. So I've got little dogs. I love our little dogs. Uh, the truth is not for everybody out there, but for a lot of people, if you are a fan of big dogs, your relationship is kind of modeled on a friendship relationship. Yeah. You see the dog as as sort of a friend, whereas people who've got little dogs tend to see the dogs as children and mm-hmm. have that sort of recreate a kind of a parent-child relationship. And uh, you can see this in quotes from people uh, who, who one woman I thought was very interesting who had both a little dog and a larger dog Um when they would get off the leash and, and run around, she wasn't worried about the larger dog because no. it could take care of itself. But she was sure the little dog was going to like run out in front of a car or hurt itself. Of course, the little dog was an adult dog. It was every bit as old as the larger one. Mm-hmm. But in her mind, she was still treating it as if it was a small child, but the larger dog as if it was an adult. Yeah, I've uh, uh, I've asked a bunch of people about this after reading the book and everyone tracks so far everyone i've talked to completely tracks and we do too we we treat our dog as if he has a complete mind we always talk about how smart he is mm-hmm. and and that he has this mind uh and we have friends just down the street who have their little dogs that they're very protective of never let them off the leash yep. yeah yeah one of the things too that's interesting about this book is you go to so many uh, it was unexpected sp- places with regard to where where your research finds you and one of those i thought was really interesting is this relationship between brands and religion. Um, And and so can you talk a bit about what what you uncovered with regard to those two things? Yeah. So people need a sense of higher purpose and meaning in their lives. No matter what. No matter what. People, I guess, you know, not everyone may need this to the same degree. I think some of us have a more philosophic or religious temperament than other people. Mm -hmm. But people really do, in general, need this. And people get that. A lot of people who are religious, that's one of the things they get from their religion. Uh, People who are not religious look to other places. A lot of people now look to politics. Politics has become the secular religion, particularly on the left, um, but also somewhat on the right. Uh, It's interesting that a lot of Trump's supporters uh, tended to be people who were in a community that would have been like a Christian right community, but they themselves did not attend church. Hmm. So they, they were looking for some sort of a, a religious connection. Um, but, you know, they didn't want to find it in church like their neighbors were. Right. So that, that's very interesting. However, yeah. for some people, they look to brands for this. And there is a tendency for people who are not religious to be a little bit more interested in brands on the whole. Now, 
can just hear uh, a lot of listeners out there mm -hmm. saying that doesn't make any sense. Um, in their view, they may see many of our listeners will be part of sort of a highly educated, politically progressive, left-wing community, sort of your New York Times reading yeah. community. Yep. NPR listener. Uh, NPR listener, exactly. And that particular group of Americans tends to have a lot of issues with materialism, which makes sense. Mm -hmm. And I will admit to being part of that group of Americans myself, right? Mm -hmm. So we tend to, to be very skeptical of brands. And many people in that group are also somewhat skeptical of religion. Yeah. So I don't think it necessarily holds in that group. But if you look at America as a whole, it's, it's a lot bigger than just that group of people. Mm -hmm. And so if you look at the country as a whole, it turns out to be the case that uh, people who are less religious are a little bit more interested in brands and look for meaning in brands more. Interesting. Okay. You also pose this question in the book. You say, quote, do you, did you ever wonder why there are women's and men's shampoos, but there aren't women's and men's laundry detergent? All right. That, that, <laughs> <laughs> why so, is that the case? Why is that the case? So what's going on? The central mechanism in love, and this is when you love a person, when you love your pet, when you love your car, your cell phone, whatever it is, the central mechanism is seeing that person or thing as part of yourself. We talk about this, right? When people get married, they say, you know, two people become as one. There's a sort of a combination of your uh, identity. And there's a lot of different ways that things can become part of your identity. And one of them is that if they spend a lot of time touching your body or if you eat them. So food is very symbolic. People care more about food. If you think about vegans, right? more people give up animal food than give up wearing leather right. um, because food is really charged for people. But right behind it are things like clothing. So clothing is very much a part of our identity. And part of it's because people see us wearing it, which, which makes it part of our identity. But the other part is that it's just on our bodies all the time. Mm -hmm. And so we sort of rub off on it uh, in this way. So shampoo that really touches your body directly, people see it as connected to their identity and they want a shampoo that fits with and expresses their identity. And for a lot of people, gender is part of that. They want a shampoo that fits with their gender identity. Um, whereas laundry detergent that doesn't touch our body in the same direct way, we don't see it as being part of our identity and therefore don't really care if it matches our gender identity. How long is that research been around because I have I have to wonder whether the Unilevers of the world ha have, have this information and know when to make a feminine or a masculine product. Oh, they totally do. Okay. And one of the <laughs> one of the more interesting trends, and this isn't even that new, but as gender identity has become more complex, right? Gender identities represented by products and brands have become complex. So Calvin Klein, who is just a total master of this stuff, mm -hmm. uh, came out uh, some years ago with a perfume called CK1, the one perfume for a man or a woman. So oh, wow. it 
still represented people's gender identity. It just simply represented a gender identity that was more androgynous. Right. So there were things for men, things for women, and then there were things for both. And that, that became very popular. And I think it was very, a little bit ahead of its time, but very successful. Um, uh, towards the end of the book, you, you delve into economic capital versus cultural capital. And I think this is really important. Definitely, definitely speaks to the schism in the country, schisms mm-hmm. in the country. Um, so talk to us a little bit how the, what the, the difference between the two and how they represent themselves through, through things. Right. So the basic uh, idea here, and a lot of this comes from the work of uh, French sociologist Pierre Bourdieu, and the basic idea is that people are really motivated by status, which is something I think is very true. Um, we say we want money, for example, but really the reason we want money most of the time is that we want to feel good about ourselves and the yeah. social status we get is going to help us feel good about ourselves. So if you think about social status as the thing that people want, um, there are lots of different ways that you can get social status. Um, you can get it from being born into a really fancy family, right? Mm-hmm. But the two ways that are important here, um, one is you get it by having a lot of money, being successful. The other, uh, and that would be called economic capital. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other way that you get social status that's relevant here is by being smart, educated, erudite, creative, and we'll call that cultural capital. So uh, someone who is highly educated, particularly if they have like a liberal arts background education, um, that gives them a kind of sophisticated cultural capital, a sense of their identity as a, as a smart, sophisticated person. Mm-hmm. The things that we love reflect both of these bases of status. So for a lot of people, uh, if they value, you know, economic success, being professionally successful, objects that display their wealth are things that they really love. Um, And I definitely have talked to people, especially people who grew up um, working class or, you know, in a lower income kind of background and have made it by one road or another. They are very happy to tell you that I love my Chanel handbag because when I wear it, everybody else can see how expensive it is and they all envy me, right? They'll say that right out loud. Um, And interestingly for me, um, I was raised in an environment where saying something like that out loud was very, very gauche. That would be considered very gauche. Um, But I find that when I'm in the room with them, interviewing them, and they say this, I just want to root for them because they go through mm-hmm. their their story of like how hard they've worked and what they've overcome to achieve this. And then when they finally get it, I just want to say, okay, you go, girl, you know, right, show right. off that handbag. That's great. Mm-hmm. For many other people, the same people I was talking about uh, a, a few moments ago, your New York Times NPR crowd, mm-hmm. right? Which is us. Which is us. <laughs> right. Um we find status not so much in having money, but in being smart and sophisticated. And so we tend to love things that show how smart and sophisticated we are. And it's not phony love. We're not pretending to love these things. We really love them, but they really do 
our, our taste is structured by the fact and sort of develops through the fact that other people around us who we respect and want to impress, when we do something that shows ourselves to be smart and sophisticated and creative, um, the people around us like that. And we pick up on that. And we find that rewarding. And then we come to find those kinds of objects and products rewarding. So different books we might read, the music we listen to, um, the kinds of shows we watch on television, uh, a lot of that are all ways of sort of displaying both to ourselves and other people that we're worthy of their respect because we're smart, sophisticated people. Uh, uh, I, I worked for Bernie Solomons, who was the founder of Second City. And I remember him telling me once that uh, what was highly unusual about Second City, and we started in 1959, mm-hmm. was that it was um, highbrow art being delivered through a lowbrow medium. Yes. And and I, I think that that seems like a when you talk about this thing that happens in these sort of liberal communities where we are um, because of our values are progressive, we can't, you know, like look on things like reality TV too mm-hmm. smugly. Yeah. Right. Now this is, this is comes a, a lot of this thinking comes from uh, a friend and fellow researcher, Douglas Holt, Doug Holt, who, mm-hmm. who's done work in this area that I found very influential. Um, Absolutely. So people who are in this sort of educated group, and I can call them the, the term that, that I like is bobos. Um, yeah. So bohemian bourgeoisie. So you're bourgeois, you've got some money, but you've got a bohemian background. Yeah. Right? Uh, people in this group, we our values are that we shouldn't look down on other people. We shouldn't be snobs. And I think that's an excellent value. I believe that very strongly. Uh, if you look at people sort of with old school, old fashioned cultural capital, think Downton Abbey, right? Part of the, the upper crust there, what made them, uh, see, gave them prestige was, you know, knowing how to hold your fork right, right? Knowing all the table manners, speaking with the right accent. Um, that's really what cultural capital was in 1900. But now it's changed. Uh, now it's, being really smart and creative and sophisticated, but doing it in a way that hopefully doesn't come off as too snobby. And so one of the things people do is we take things that are popular culture and we analyze them and talk about them in ways that are very sophisticated. So people say, oh, I'm a huge fan of Beyonce, but then they'll write this whole cultural studies critique of, you know, why Beyonce is so wonderful. Mm-hmm. And uh, the fact that you love Beyonce says, I'm not a snob. Uh, but the fact that you can write the cultural studies critique about it says, but don't, you know, don't confuse me with someone who who doesn't have my level of erudition. Uh, it's funny because you, you cite some um, studies around the fact that a lot of people sort of stop listening to do new music at a, at a certain point. And I am not one of those people. Like I, I have always, and I think it's in part working at a place like Second City, even though I get older, the actors are all the same 
mostly as young age. Yeah. And, I, and I've had them put together like uh, mix CDs or other stuff for me when I, when I was like, explain Radiohead to me. I never got on the Radiohead track. And then right. literally my friend Tim Baltz was like, okay, I'm going to make this and we're going to have a discussion. And, and we did. Um, but I listen to now um, uh, a podcast that was recommended to me called Switched on Pop, uh, where mm-hmm. it's two very smart, uh, educated guys breaking down popular music, the stuff that's actually selling. Exactly. Um, and yes. So, so like me sort of discovering Taylor Swift at the age of 55, <laughs> which my son laughs at me, but it's good. I, I think it's good music. I actually think it's good music. Absolutely. I like Taylor Swift. Okay. I like Taylor Swift. Um, I've been listening. If you want, I can take Taylor Swift and do you one better. I've been listening to Walker Hayes. Oh, okay. Hayes. Okay. So really, really pop. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a country guy, really popular. Um, and I just think he does has a real talent for feel good, funny, you know, uplifting popular music that uh, doesn't make you think too hard or make you think really very much at all. But right. it, but it's a, a lot of fun. Um, so absolutely. Uh, there's a phrase that people use for people like us, which mm. is omnivores. Yeah. So uh, back at the, you know, Down Abbey period, people were snobs. They would listen to classical music and opera, but um, there was even a, a, an episode in Down Abbey where they go to listen to a jazz group and how sort of appalled the older generation was uh, by this music. But because, you know, they were very conservative and they were very comfortable with elitism. They, they, their whole life was found on elitism, but mm-hmm. we're not comfortable with elitism. Right. So we like to, to have a variety of stuff. So when I, I get hired to go speak to lots of different groups, and I often talk about what actually motivates people. And there's all this research that it's not about money. Um, people want to be seen and appreciated publicly, mm-hmm. uh, how important that is. And you talk about something that's really interesting. And, and, and I can tell like, you know, uh, half the crowd believes me and the other half doesn't. Mostly the bosses don't. Um, you write in the book, quote, like most things in the modern world, money didn't exist at the time our bodies evolved. So we don't have an evolutionary response specifically for money, end quote. That's another way. That's, that's a very powerful way of, of showing us why a, a appreciation and being seen feels more important than getting a raise. Absolutely. Um, And I I will just chime in here that it's been my observation, partly through introspection, that when um, I get multiple job offers and one is more lucrative than another, Mm -hmm. part of the reason that I'm really attracted to the higher paying offer is because it feels like they love me more, right? Right. It, it really feels like they must value me a lot. It's a kind of appreciation. So even for a lot of the reason when we do like money, we like it because it's a signal that people value us and, and appreciate us. But one of the myths that I hear a lot when people talk about evolution, they'll say things like, you know, back when humans were evolving, we had to worry about saber-toothed tigers. But now in today's society, we have to worry about office politics. Um, that's totally wrong. Uh, it's true. We don't have to worry about saber-toothed tigers now that they're extinct. That's a nice thing for us. But 
back during our evolutionary history, we were more worried about office politics than we are today. You know, we didn't have an office, but we lived in these communities. They were small groups of people. Um, and you were with the same people your whole life. And if you stunk up a relationship, there was no escape. Yeah. And your future in that group was entirely dependent on having good relationships with the other people in that group. So we evolved as if having relationships with other people was a matter of life and death because it literally was a matter of life and death. And that's why those relationships, even to this day, are really what's centrally motivating to people. Interesting. Okay. In a moment, I'm going to ask you for a yes and story, but before we do, uh, one last question. Um, You write in the book, quote, the decision to love someone is closely associated with the religious concept of grace, end quote. How so? Well, the religious idea of grace is that you, God bestows onto us uh, love and blessings that we do not really merit, go beyond what we really merit. And we talked earlier about how we often have positive illusions about the people that we love. We see them Mm -hmm. as being a little bit better than they really are. But even that is not enough to sustain love. In addition to the positive illusions, you really need to decide that you're going to love this person more perhaps than they, quote, deserve. And they're going to do the same for you. And that's what really makes interpersonal relationships possible in a positive way and really makes them work. People don't do that as much when they love things. People are much more judgmental about things. So there's really interesting research that uh, uses fMRI machines. So they put people in these brain scan machines and they scan their brains as the person thinks about and looks at a picture of a person they love romantically, maybe their spouse um, or their children, another example, or a brand that they love or an object that they love. And then they see, is there a difference in the parts of the brain that are activated in these situations? The part of the brain that is most associated with loving brands more than the other kinds of love, interpersonal love, is the part of our brain that makes judgments. So Mm. yes, we sometimes judge our children. And yes, when we're dating, we judge the person we're dating. Are they attractive to us, et cetera? But when we look at brands, we're very judgmental. And that makes it harder for marketers. Um, your brand really needs to be good. Uh, it, being good isn't enough, but being good is a requirement because people are very judgmental of objects and brands and products that they may or may not love. We were involved with some research with Dr. Charles Lim, uh, who started by having he actually he's a musician as uh, as well as a scientist he built a, a plastic piano so he could study um people improvising music and doing straight music in the F- fmri and mm-hmm. then he did rappers and then he did theatrical improvisers and that's when second city started started sending talent uh, to to go under so and interesting he, yeah what he discovered is that when we are improvising the judgment part of the brain goes down mm-hmm. and the part of the brain that's open to expression um, is it lights up. And so literally the idea is when we are being creative, we're in a different brain state. 
That totally makes sense to me. Yes. And I think people, people love activities and objects that give them really positive experiences. Mm -hmm. That's no surprise there. You know, one of the things that all three types of love, romantic love, loving your children and loving a brand or an object have in common is that all three are strongly associated with positive emotional rewards. Mm -hmm. That kind of improvising activity that turns off the judgment um, and gets you into kind of a flow state. Yep. Yep is super rewarding. And when people talk about activities or objects that they love, they very much mention that they are capable of providing those sorts of emotional rewards. So that makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, do you have a yes and story for us? I do have a yes and story for you. And I kind of signaled it uh, a little bit uh, earlier. So when I was growing up, all of my friends, we listened to rock music. We thought we hated country music. Right. I don't think we did because we never heard it. So how did we hate it, right? But we mm-hmm. thought we did. And what that was really about was our group of people were the rock music people. The yeah. country music people were these other people. And they weren't our group of people. So we weren't going to like uh, their music. Later, as I got older, I've made kind of a hobby out of taking things that I didn't love or even didn't like and learning to develop a taste for them. And at one point I said, you know, this is kind of silly of me to have this prejudice against country music. I'm going to get to like country music. So I wanted to stop saying no to country music and start saying yes to it. And the way that you go about learning to love something or at least like it is just, you. first of all, you need to keep exposing yourself. So right. you've got to listen, even if the first song you hear, you don't like it, you just have to make yourself listen. But another part of it is, as you're listening, you need to ask yourself, what's good about this? What's mm-hmm. likable about this? And turn off the voices that are going to be chiming in with what's bad about this. So if you look, have a positive disposition, and you look for what's good, you will find it. And after a while, just about anything, you will come to really like it. So o- over time, um, I came to like a lot of country music. I learned to uh, go two-stepping. And, hmm. and so going dancing was really very fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and I still get some pleasure out of it. I don't listen to country all that often. Um, but when I do, I really enjoy it. And I would say that was sort of saying yes to country. And then the and part is, I learned to say yes to a lot of other things, too, that I wasn't necessarily originally enamored with. In the book, I I talk about this. I won't repeat the whole list for you here. But I do think that there's an opportunity for a lot of people to have a little bit more love in your life by learning to love the things that are around you and Mm -hmm. learning to find what's good in the things that are around you. Uh, yeah, my story on that is opera. Um, and what happened was, um, Renee Fleming, uh, called some of the a concierge called on behalf of Renee Fleming for tickets to a show. The person in the box office didn't really know who Renee Fleming was and certainly wouldn't, wouldn't have put her in the show that they did because Renee sat through a show where we were illegally sampling her voice throughout the entire show. <laughs> the musical director did. And it actually, she got inspired and uh, was like, hey, and, and we had coffee the next day and and um, 
uh, we collaborated with, with, with Lyric Opera to create the show. But what we did was we took a year to basically learn about each other. So they came, the opera folks came to a bunch of Second City Improv and Second City Sketch Shows. We went to opera. We interviewed people. We'd like, we, we lived in their world. And guess what? Like, I'm fascinated by it. And it's like, and I'm not like, opera isn't a go-to for me, but like, I know when it's beautiful and I have so much more appreciation for its influence because I, I lived inside it for an entire year. And what's really typical about that story, it's obviously a very unusual story in many ways, mm-hmm. but what's very typical is first you connected with the people. Right. And then that brought you to appreciate um, what they loved. So in my case, I kind of forced it a little bit. I made yeah. myself listen to country music. And what's interesting about that is through the process, I came to feel closer to that very large segment of the American population mm-hmm. that likes country music. And I, I, I was able to get off over some of my prejudices about them by coming to share this cultural interest with them. But more often, it happens the other way around. You meet yeah. somebody, you like the person, and then they connect you to a, a new thing. And that is, as I was saying, I talked about the three relationship warmers, right? The mm-hmm. second one is that you connect the, the thing you love to a person that you at least like. Yeah. And that's, I think, what was happening with your opera example. Uh, the book is called The Things We Love, How Our Passions Connect Us and Make Us Who We Are. Aaron Ahuvia, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's been wonderful. Getting the Yes And podcast is produced by The Second City and WGN Radio. We are supported at The Second City by Mike Farinaccio and Colleen Fahey. Our show is produced by Andrew Harris at WGN. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of the podcast is by Jukebox the Ghost. If you're interested in knowing more about The Second City, you can log on to secondcity.com or email us at works at secondcity.com.
survive.